Welcome to the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Ryman, here with my co-host, Mark McCulley, and we just got done with a really insightful discussion today, didn't we, Mark? It, it was. I think one of the things that we're so fortunate in the, in the Angus breed and within our Angus organization, we, we can have these conversations up and down the supply chain. We, can, we get to, to interact with uh, cow-calf producers and talk about what, uh, what conversations they're having. And, and today we get to go all the way to the other end of the supply chain. And we brought in a, a packer in, in Glenn Dolezal from, from Cargill and, and our very own John Stick as president of Certified Angus Beef. And it was a, uh, we spent time talking about how things work there at the packing plant in terms of assigning value and the changes in, in that business. You know, until I started working for Certified Angus Beef in 2006, my only experience with the packing side of the business would be my local locker plant that we ran some freezer beef program out of you know so the amount that you can learn about what happens in that that segment and then how that impacts the the business is pretty fun so it is i you know when i started at certified angus beef i was actually director of packing i'm I'm not sure i was qualified to be but that's what they uh, that's what they allowed me to do and so i got to to for the really for the first time i'd been in a bigger plant but really got to go interact and work with our licensed packing partners and i know in our business a lot of cattlemen i talk to there's that that adversarial relationship we have with our packers, but I think uh, you know I've 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 been able to to, to make a lot of friends on that side that, that work some really great people that work in in that industry, and and I think today having Glenn on was to really can talk about the, the some of the things he's led and and from and their organization has led. You know, we spend a lot of time in the genetic business talking about you know, value creation and, and, and improving our product uh, value and, and representing that as a brand out to a consumer. But so much of that starts with a really effective way of, of making sure we, we get that, those cattle graded well. And we really spent a lot of time talking about make, how does that happen and what have the advancements made? Because it's, it's pretty pivotal in our industry today. I think I'd have to go look it up to be sure. But I think maybe the first time I ever interviewed Glenn, we were talking about what could be as it relates to camera grading or like what if we implemented this technology so to be on the other side of that and see that it's been kind of a game changer in the amount of data that we've got and what we're able to do with that data it's pretty fun to see that side of the conversation it has it's kind of old news now but and and so we got to spend some time looking down the road and seeing what's on the future all right let's just jump into it absolutely well, here at the podcast today, we've got folks across the table, which is kind of nice. It feels a little bit better than a Zoom call. Uh, we got Glenn Dolezal. Glenn's a Texas A&M grad, uh, went to OSU, worked at OSU, and now is with Cargill Meat Solutions. So we've got kind of academia and industry represented. Right. Yeah, and then we've got John Sticka. I don't know if I consider you a bonus co-host or an additional guest, but... I'll fill whatever gap needs to be filled. So. <laughs> John probably doesn't need a lot of introduction, of course, as president of Certified Angus Beef, a position he's held for a long time and came up through the ranks there at CAB, Kansas Farm Boy, um, K-State, Kentucky. Yep. What am I missing in there? No, that's all of it. That's, that's all of all. it. He yeah. was Great. an outstanding meat judger at Kansas State. Well, thank marginal you, livestock judger, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marginal at several things, but by gosh, I could judge me. <laughs> yeah. 
good. Now we're thrilled to have you guys join us here. I mean, and you know, in in the especially in the in the in the Angus genetics world, we spend an awful lot of time talking about carcass merit and and making our end product better. And kind of one of the things we wanted to get into a little bit today was how is that done? I mean, I, I think a lot of times we think about carcass data and we don't really maybe give it a whole lot of thought of how how data is being collected, how data how value is being assigned in the plants, how that's evolved over the years. And you guys, I know, have, have been um, on the front row of watching our industry evolve. And Glenn, in particular, you, you've, you've led so much of, of this industry's uh, movement to finding more objective ways to uh, to evaluate carcasses and, and our end product, which is so important to us on the genetic side of things. Obviously, it's it's key to our, our consumers, so we appreciate that. And, and, and maybe give us a little of that, that, that journey of, of yours, Glenn, of just kind of from from academia into the industry. You've seen, you've seen, this isn't saying you're old, but you've seen, <laughs> seen, you've seen some things, uh, you've seen some changes in our business. No, uh, there's been a lot of great change, you know, and the first thing that comes to my mind is dating back to the old box beef calculator work mm. we did at OSU, and I think you do a lot of that still today in total dollar value and some aspects like that. Uh, devoted a lot of my career once I got to Cargill. I was at OSU for 16 years and then Cargill since 99, so I'm knocking on 24, but the progress we've made with camera-based grading has been phenomenal, and we think that it provides a lot more accurate and consistent data for feedback to seed stock producers who are trying to make genetic change or cow-calf and feed yards that are trying to manage. Here more recently, I think the work done with dentition-based maturity, uh, upgrading that, we used to average 5% no-roll, today we're closer to 1%. And that other 4% is going into prime CAB and choice. And so it's great beef and we did the right thing. I think we need to continue to look for opportunities, Mark. And it, it, we can't rely on, because uh, a lot has changed, genetics especially, yeah. and management as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let me talk a little about your role at Cargill specifically. What things to fall under uh, your, uh, your leadership, things that you've uh, uh, been a part of? I started out uh, uh, primarily in R&D. We developed uh, several tenderness claims with some key customers, particularly in retail. Then they moved me into sales. Uh, I got to experience all the customer communication when things go south, like <laughs> got to recalls. Yeah. <laughs> when we lost FTB, our, our leader, John Keating, was in Australia, and he calls me up and says, what's the update? And I said, FTB's gone. And so some of that. Since then, uh, they put me in charge of our grading and certification in North America, as well as our animal welfare. And Lacey Alexander helps me with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, actually, I think that's one of the things that makes Glenn such a resource to our industry is because he's he has experienced everything from the science and the research at a foundational level in a very practical, applied perspective, but has had to deal with uh, questions, concerns directly from the customer who is far removed from everything that we do. And so he's been a, been a tremendous bridge uh, across the entire beef community. And and uh, it's probably why he's on this podcast. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like your guys' timelines line up pretty well with when you went to Cargill and when, John, you were at CAB. Talk about at that point in your careers, what were the conversations that you guys were having then around product quality, around where the industry was headed? 
and take us back. Yeah, I mean, if we go back 24 years, um, you know, there were grids out there, but grid marketing was brand new. And so I think to hear Glenn talk about the, the, the pass through of information and camera grading and the way that it really allowed us now to capture information in volume affordably, uh, and be able to feed that information back. It goes back to you can't manage what you don't measure. And you look today of where we are in data collection and data feedback, uh, boy, look at the quality mix that we see today versus where we were 24 years ago. And I think that, that speaks very clearly to um, kind of the advancement of that whole movement. But you know, we, weren't, we weren't thinking about making cattle inherently better in terms of marbling and quality. We were, we were talking about ways to, to manufacture value, meaning uh, through vitamin E and, and things like that, uh, looking at different ways to pump product to make it more tender, make it more juicy, to take a low quality product and make it palatable. And, and I think the big revolution that's taken place here through relationships across the supply and merchandising chain has been we have a great product here's what the consumer wants now let's let's inherently breed and manage the quality into the cattle give them the meet their genetic propensity to to please the consumer and and that's been a I think in, in a nutshell the big evolution that we've seen from our standpoint instead of manufacturing quality Let's take advantage of the genetic quality that are in these cattle, and we'll do that by passing through information that says where the value is. When, when you're in R&D, though, is it more fun to do that or to, to be worrying about how to characterize it better? Or is it more fun to be coming up with ways to upgrade the low-quality product? No, innovation's good. I can reflect back. We came up with the tenderness claim, and we still, since March of '04. We still sample one out of every 200 uh, carcass that we grade or certify in our plants. So we're still physically measuring cooking steaks, measuring tenderness, because we have several customers still on it. But I can remember Scott Eiler telling me a while back on our team that pump pork was big. Uh, salt, water, phosphate, and, and I think one of the major retailers went to a brand of pump beef, and he told me that it would replace uh, non-pump beef in the marketplace, so tenderness wouldn't be an issue in the future, and that quickly died on the vine. <laughs> so it's good, but no, innovation's fun. But what I, I still visit with a lot of customers today, and uh, that's what's replaced teaching for me as a faculty member, and so I enjoy that and, and try to stay engaged. You know, you think about it. I don't know if it was a chicken or the egg maybe situation. We were had we. Were we only thinking about adding value to low-quality product because we had accepted that that's just what we were going to do? Mm -hmm. And then I think when we were able to more objectively measure quality in the plants and, and get a value-based marketing system that tied to that, we sent signals back, and then it, it, it gave incentive for producers to do better and genetics to do better. And, and now it's, it's, hey, we don't have to accept a poor quality product and we got to figure out how to yep. make it better. We've got some outliers we can add value to, but it is, I think, a, a significant mindset shift in our industry that's mm -hmm. definitely been for the better, yep. but it is a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Did we need the cameras and the gr better grading to do that? Did we need, uh, again, those things probably all aligned and came together about the same time, I suppose. No, no, no doubt, Mark. Back in the 80s, everybody was working on restructured beef yeah. and aspects like that to upgrade low quality. 
And, and it just didn't come to fruition uh, because people still wanted a great steak and a great taste. And, and just look, the further verification, Canada used to not be marbling-based, and they essentially match our grades today. And here more recently, they match our five-yield grades. And so we've been on a good path. Uh, we've really delivered for customers. Quality of beef has never been higher. Uh, our six North American plants have all graded above 80% in Prime and Choice, or in Canada, Prime and AAA, the past two weeks. And so that's a great story on the quality of beef. Yeah, yeah I think it, it comes down to, Mark, maybe to, to your point, is um, producers weren't, weren't just uh, necessarily... Uh, running at this blindly, you know, and the industry wasn't. You look at it really, we were following economic signals, and I think the economic signals maybe weren't as clear. And so when economic signals aren't clear, you go a lot of different directions. You scatter. And I think when we look over the last 24 years, you know, if if the demand low was in 1998, uh, and you look at where we are today, the economic signals have become clearer and clearer every year that we've moved forward. And I think that's why we've seen this, this centralized focus on, on quality, uh, this centralized focus on carcass merit and taste and consumer demand because you know, grid marketing, camera data collection uh, has a, really allowed that information to be captured in volume and, and, and go back through the system to create a clear economic signal. And that, that's probably what, if you look back over time, the, the science has then followed it as well. You know, it's easier to fix a problem at the beginning than it is in the, at the end. And uh, I think that's how I would describe kind of where we're at with genetics and, and carcass merit today. We're fixing a lot of issues at the beginning. Right. It doesn't mean we don't have other challenges that we need to work through with regards to maybe improvements in carcass composition, improvements in efficiency production of quality beef, which is kind of, it seems like that next frontier. But, mm-hmm. but um, the economic stimulus have gotten a lot clearer, and that sure helps give us all some direction. Well, and I think, and obviously I have a little bias in this as it relates to the to the value of the brand and certified Angus beef, but I've heard it said by producers that have a perspective on this industry prior to the brand being established and having some relevance and significance and scale, there wasn't a clear, there was not a target. And I know I've heard it said many times that the, the, the brand and the specs around the brand became a clear target to, to shoot for. And when we were only selling, you know, cattle by the pound with, with not a lot of value difference from one pound to the next, to your point, there, there was not a clear signal. Yeah. And, and as a result, we were, we were losing ground. Mm-hmm. So Glenn, both John, you guys, as you look back, again, we're spending some time looking back and I think it's important that we do because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't appreciate how far we've come. I mean, we have made some huge, huge strides. We've got challenges in front of us, of course, but we've made some huge strides. Are there a couple things you would point to over the last handful of, over the last couple decades, maybe in particular through your career that were, those were, those were landmark events or landmark things that happened or new technologies that came up? What, what, were, what would be some of the keys that you would point to? Uh, one for a fact would be growth in Angus genetics. Um, look at Canada. When I first took over grading and, and uh, animal welfare and certification a few years ago, it, it, we were lucky to get 30% black-eyed cattle in Canada that would qualify for Angus. Today we're pushing 50. And so that growth's been good. Uh, to the point about upgrading low-quality beef, I can remember when we first launched tenderness claims with a major West Coast retailer, they had their own tenderness lab in Denver, Colorado, and they tested steaks out of their stores on us to support the claim, and we got in the penalty box. 
And as a meat scientist coming in, I thought I could make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And readily, I found out you've got to get in front of it, like John Sticker said, and have some best management practices and good genetics. In the select grade, part of that was in our tenderness claim. We had a different marbling standard for Angus carcasses than we did non-Angus. Uh, our non-Angus had to be upper two-thirds select. Angus got to go the full width of select, and so that was a difference. But I think people appreciating change and the quality of beef, you know, we've made a lot of progress in that. No doubt camera grading has been instrumental. Um, uh, so we want to continue to look for those things to refine. We need to continue to look for tools that producers can make in their genetic selection and be more objective and more consistent. Yeah. 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 No, those are, I think those are phenomenal answers, and neither one of us are old enough to go back and say uh, the advent of boxed beef, you know, which is, which is you know, one of them. But I, you know, as we talk about, I'm going to talk about me just identify a couple key timelines that that I think, looking back, were, were super instrumental. And I go back to 2008 with the, the global economic recession and so forth. And and I'll use our own brand, but I think, Glenn, you could speak to, to other premium brands brands as well that 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 we saw the recession come about and, and every every prediction was that every premium brand was going to be down mm -hmm. that every premium product that was sold at a higher price was going to be traded out for a commodity lower cost cheaper item by the consumer and I, I think that is so important because not only did certified Angus beef uh, uh, work through that and not see a decline we actually had another record year that year and started a, a continual year after year movement of record years one after another from a volume standpoint kind of solidifying that it's not just about price it's about price in relation to value and that that consumers really use to define that and I, I think that was a really critical point in terms of I think our mentality because we still hear it you know when's the consumer gonna push back and I think the reality is is they do push back when there's movements in price they, they, they trade out from one beef item to another maybe they do trade out for for even another protein at times but at the end of the the day they still love our product it tastes great we've listened to their uh, demands for quality and they've they've truly not stopped buying our product every year even though we ask them to pay more for it because as long as we keep that value proposition above the price and so I think that was a pretty critical time for our industry to maybe reframe that if, if you produce something the consumer likes they will buy it okay as long as you you put it in front of them at a, at a fair fair price in relation to the value the other one that i think is so important take the the drought uh, go back to 2011 and i think it speaks to glenn's comment about the advent of uh, of angus genetics or the growth of angus genetics we liquidated a lot of cows that year just like we have here recently but it's in particular that time period and when they repopulated they repopulated with some of the most end user focused carcass oriented genetics in the females they chose to keep back and we saw a huge improvement in quality across our industry as a result that really I think set us up to be where we are today and uh, I think that helped set up producers even though times are tight today to, to take advantage of the premiums for prime certified Angus beef and upper quality that um, are as important now as ever to help these bottom lines you know go positive and, and profitable so two key timelines I think that were really important and John I'd add COVID to that the pandemic yeah mm -hmm. uh, you know, we lost food service for a good period of time, over a year, and uh, retail took all we could produce. And it flew off the shelf, 
And the only thing left was stuff like alternative protein patties. <laughs> that's right. And so that yeah. speaks to the great taste of yeah. beef and the demand. It's a great visual, too, when that went around on social media, that's right. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we had Randy Block on the uh, on, on a previous podcast, and you know he pointed to the National Beef Quality Audit. Um, and yeah, I had, it, it probably put that in perspective for me, too. I mean, had that was at a time when maybe we didn't, we, we weren't given yeah. the, 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 the cattle industry really much of any information to, of, a, of a report card, a scorecard to say, where are we at? How are we doing? Where do we get better? And yep. you know, I, we probably take some of that information for granted a little bit today, and that we kind of because of reporting, because of, of objective evaluation and grading, we, we, we know a little bit better where we're at. But boy, it wasn't that long ago. We were, we were kind of feeling around in the dark. Yeah. No, absolutely. And they're getting ready to release uh, uh, the most current version of the National Beef Quality Audit we met in December. Uh, and the quality of beef has never been higher. I can reflect back, and I challenged them. I remember early on in the 90s, we had a war on fat. Yeah. And if you have to judge the score or the grade of that today, we're losing that war because cattle are pretty fat. <laughs> yeah. But we found so many other sources for this fat, like biodiesel and other products, that it hadn't been as onerous as it was back in yeah. the day. Yeah. 24-7-365, all day, every day. Ranching never stops and your cowherd's nutrition shouldn't stop either. Westway Feed Products produces molasses-based liquid feed supplements for your cow herd. This liquid feed adds protein, energy, vitamins, and minerals to complement your standing forages, hay, or mixed rations. By increasing forage digestibility, Westway's liquid supplements support fetal programming, increase cow pregnancy rates, and overall herd performance. To learn more about Westway's liquid feed supplements, 24-7-365 nutrition concepts, or to locate a dealer, visit www.westwayfeed.com or give us a call at 800-800-7517. So maybe as we talk about, we've been referencing camera grading, objective, yeah. objective measures. Maybe not everybody on this listening to this would would have been in plants and see what we're even talking about as we talk about camera grading. You maybe give just a little overview of kind of what you're doing today, what what technology you're using in your plants uh, to, uh, to 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 assess grade. Yes, we're using the E plus V uh, technology out of Germany. I'd say that's basically what everyone is using in the United States. There's some other new one wrinkles being offered coming on board, but they haven't been evaluated yet by USDA AMS. Uh, we launched camera grading on September 2nd of 2009. Uh, so we're essentially in our 14th year of, of camera grading. Uh, we, we drive our whole business off of it. We evaluate our buyers. We evaluate our fabrication floors on expected yields. Uh, we do a lot of things with this technology, and, and, and we think it's great. Uh, and if you look today, I would 70% uh, of our cattle are traded on a carcass merit or value-based carcass grid. That's how they're paid for, so those decisions are key. I'd say as an industry, we're probably averaging closer, or we're above 80% that are marketed that way so uh, technology is important um, we do a hundred percent of our red meat yield prediction with the camera with the traditional five yield grades the only difference is we watch it to a tenth of a yield grade instead of in a whole yield grade as USDA used to subjectively apply them and, and so we know that red meat yield is on a continuum and so it's important to stay abreast of that to watch it on steers versus heifers, different cattle types, beef on dairy, 
uh, Angus, whatever the case may be. So maybe for as a again just a quick overview of what it's the camera's actually doing. It's literally taking a picture of that interface that at where that twelfth, thirteenth rib and that carcasses, and then it's through a series of algorithms and such, it's measuring the ribeye, the fat thickness, marbling level, but then it's it's also giving you some other it it's capturing an awful lot of data that even you know, the average producer wouldn't be thinking about color, things like that as well. You bet. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, the average grader or our cooler, cooler personnel have less than eight seconds to make a decision. Yeah. Once our camera operator pulls the trigger and gets an error-free image in a fraction of one second, then we both, USDA and our personnel, have the rest of that time to decide where to put this carcass, mm -hmm. grade-wise, brand-wise sort-wise, whatever the case may be. But no, you're right, Mark. It measures the ribeye, it measures the back fat, it measures the marbling, it measures the lean color, and we feel good about that for in case we need to have dark cutter discounts or off-colored lean. Uh, it calculates yield grade, and it, and it even uh, recommends brand. It'll recommend whether or not this one should be considered, or it, it does qualify for certified Angus beef. And then USDA just has to decide yes or no. Uh, they either accept it or override it, and then our tagger says, I agree or disagree. And then if we disagree, that creates a regrade for reconsideration. Yeah. Great, great That's explanation. That's a great clarification. I wanted to point out that the USDA is still involved because yes. I think sometimes when people hear camera grading and we all went automated and that we just kind of, well, you packers just get to decide now without any oversight. It's not that way. No, you're dead right. We, at the start of every shift, there are four marbling cards that USDA owns. We have to place those under the camera, take an image of each one, and there's a tolerance, but it's pretty tight. And then if a camera pays, uh, passes all four cards, then it's okay to go online. If not, it fails. You better go get another camera. So they're there to oversee that. They're there to make all the decisions. We pay for that service, and so they're still heavily involved. I think one of the things that's always um, uh, good to point out here is this is, you know, while we can, there's there's obviously areas where where producers and packers, you know, don't always have the same the same end in mind. But this is one of those that never should be in question because the packer and the producer have the same objective here when it comes to grading, more primes, more CABs, more choice. Uh, uh, this isn't a, a spot where where there's really disagreement on that, and so we're fortunate to have technology and objective measures to try to get that, uh, to, to make sure we're really stringently evaluating those lines for value, because everybody wants the same outcome. True. Right. Everybody wants more value, more sometimes value Sometimes that's not maybe the first yeah. thought of, of, a, yeah, of exactly. a producer thinks that it's, it's this buy-sell right yeah. conflict that's there, when in reality, everybody, you know, the packer makes more money if that's a prime carcass, and, yep. and the producer does as well, and everybody downstream yep. wants that to, to be as, as good as it can be. And, yeah. John, from a branded beef program, I guess, talk about the, the how things have changed now and the implementation of camera grading and what's that mean to the brand and the, and the promise around the brand? Yeah, you know, when you look at the use of technology, I'd, I'd say from our standpoint is we, we, wanted, we want every, we, we always want our specifications applied as stringently as possible. Okay, we want, we want the marbling score stringently evaluated. We don't want low quality product getting into certified Angus beef. We don't want any of our specifications being applied 
without the rigor that we expect to make sure make sure that we're maintaining the reputation of the brand for quality and consistency uh, in the in the marketplace. And that's what our customers at food service and retail expect that we will protect the integrity and the quality of the brand through the the rigid application of those specs. You know, at the same time, we want every carcass that meets those specs in our licensed uh, plants to so, to get into the brand. Mm-hmm. Every producer wants every carcass that meets the specs to get into the brand. And so so I think what camera grading has allowed us to do is to apply those specifications with more rigor, more consistency across the industry, uh, and uh, and do so where if it's if it's modest zero, it's modest zero. Mm-hmm. And it gets into the brand, okay? If it's small 90 or a little lower, you know, it, it doesn't get in. But I think that's probably what we look at from a brand standpoint is it brings an objectivity mm-hmm. to our brand that is very beneficial to protecting our integrity. And, and I would echo that. I, I would say that the cameras really improve the consistency. CAB has a lot of criteria that you've <laughs> got to meet. And so each week I look at the criteria for carcass weight, marbling, back fat thickness, ribeye range, lean color. Uh, not I think a, he's uh, calling you high maintenance. Or John. hard to work with. I don't know which one it is, but uh. <laughs> yeah, not an over the thirty month, you know, carcass. And the list goes on. Yeah, yeah. and I'll tell you that uh, the camera plants uh, CAB accuracy electronically with data would surpass in most instances ninety percent on all criteria. It meets them all. Uh, the number one it might miss is uh, marbling. It might dip into small 80 or small 90. But I know there's going to be noise. If we don't get an error-free image on both sides of a carcass, the side we missed could be the high marbling side. So I'm okay with that. But yeah. does a good job for that. Yep. I think the other thing that the camera grading has allowed us to do is you know because we can capture that information you know where if we're using if we're using subjective grading we 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 know if it if it got into certified angus beef or not that's easy the outcome is easy to to measure the reasoning on on why it didn't perhaps meet the brand those specifications that glenn mentioned that data is not always available it's never really available if you if you're using subjective grading. So so we can we have the database and, and you know try to do it annually. We'll do a consist of our of our brand where where our licensed packers will send us information that usually tallies in excess of a million certified Angus beef carcasses, and we can begin to understand we're really Angus influenced carcasses, and we begin to evaluate why those cattle didn't get into certified Angus beef. And what we continue to find for all the the progress we've made in marbling, okay? Same answer. <laughs> yeah, for those those cattle, those Angus-influenced cattle that don't get into CAB, over 80% of them still don't have enough marbling. Now, five years ago, that would have been closer to 90%. So we've made a tremendous amount of progress in that area. But, you know, we also are able then to evaluate, what about carcass weight? Where did carcass weight fall? What about ribeye area? What about back fat? These kinds of traits that then allow us to look at our consist and begin to understand what industry trends do we need to account for. And that's the very data that uh, really allowed us to make an educated decision about increasing our carcass weight uh, specification here just uh, October 31st of last fall. And so the, the ability to objectively you know, look at where the brand needs to go from a, from a brand and a board standpoint camera grading helps us do that very efficiently and we can look at that data real time uh, with the, the help of our licensed packer partners that, that utilize those technologies. 
as opposed to when we first started doing those consist studies it was in the plant and and measuring carcasses People and tracing papers and 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 the the ability to i mean it took a lot of effort to collect two three thousand head of data now to your yeah. point we can uh through through the cooperation of our licensed packers get yeah. you know a million head and at over a you know a geographical mix uh, over a couple different time yeah, periods and man get a get a really accurate snapshot of what's going on and be able to communicate that back yep. to our cattlemen and say hey here's 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 where we're at here's yep. our here's our measuring stick mark you bring up a great point back uh, when we adjusted the the away from the yield grade 3.9 spec years ago 2006 i believe the first major specification adjustment from from an industry relevant standpoint we made that decision off of a database of 24,000 carcasses we made the last carcass um, weight uh, adjustment off of a database of over a million and, and I, the power and the, the, the confidence that, that you can have in making fairly significant decisions that influence the economics of our, of our Angus breeders uh, is, is just really enhanced with, with camera grading technology that's available. That's a good point when you talk about camera grading. You want to have it accurate and right because that's a paycheck for the producers. So I think we talk about that often in the industry. I don't think we talk about it as often as why does having that accurate data matter for the bigger picture? What, what then can breeders maybe make decisions on based on the, the power of that data, I guess? Yeah. And the data, I mean, we use it for so many things. But you think about today, our, how, how much... How much money is on the line now? I mean, between the, <laughs> these spreads, I mean, yeah. these are these, we, we got to get it right, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot at stake. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked a lot about marbling, yeah. um, but kind of shifting. I think you kind of mentioned it maybe right away at the beginning, Glenn. But like, what's kind of the next frontier? The next. I'm not saying that we don't need to continue to improve in the marbling and the quality area, but but what's kind of the next issue issue challenge you're looking to tackle? I think we probably need to modernize our red meat yield determination in the industry. Um, USDA yield grading has been around since I was on the meat judging team in 1976, and so uh, that's like that's like when meat was brand new. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's Moses when, yeah. brought the equation down from yeah. Know, that's, that's before we had very many exotics and so forth. Uh, but uh, I still feel that USDA yield grade uh, correlates with fabrication yields. It's just that the end point of yield grading is outdated. We don't sell subprimals with a half an inch or three quarters of an inch of fat anymore. Um, we are predominantly boneless. Uh, we, we need to pick up more than just the round loin rib and chuck because the thin meats and the brisket, all the cuts of beef are important and valuable today. And we also need to do a better job. The Yield grading never estimated lean trim and ground beef and lean trim for further processed meats, uh, luncheon meats and so forth, pizza toppings is critical. So I think the industry needs to reinvest in a greater number of carcasses being tested to develop a modern red meat yield determination to uh, improve our yield grade system today. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think as we look at, um, you look at the grids that have been in place over the last several years, I mean, we, we've, we've gotten to where we are because of the economic signals. And they were, they're, because they're relevant to the most important factors that customers and consumers are telling us. So that's why we have the quality levels we have. That's why we, we also probably have a little more bark on these cattle than what might be ideal. Mm-hmm. But that's also why we have them at the weights they're at, too. And so, you know, I, the reason I, I share that is because we've clearly addressed, uh, began to address the most important issue, and that's marbling. And again, I'm, I'm, I will never say we've arrived because we haven't. Okay, right. We can still put more marbling and need to put more marbling into these cattle, because not because it's my opinion, because the spreads say we should. Right. Now, I think at the same time, when you look at how cattle are marketed, and you've got groups of cattle and plants that'll, that'll average 80% choice in prime, and so the thresholds for, to, for hit and plant averages have really gotten uh, relatively high because of the progress we made, and so when you look at where do where can producers find ways to add value, and what's our responsibility as an industry? It's okay. How do we how do we not go backwards on quality? It's not a either or. It's the consumers requiring us to stay focused on quality. But now, how do we produce those raise those cattle more efficiently? How do we raise them with with less bark uh, and so forth, and and put more dollars back in that direction as well without going backwards in terms of marbling. And so this is where camera technology, genetics, understanding the management, all those things are going to become more and more important for us. Yeah. And this probably, it, it opens a bit of a can of worms, but it's a, a can that needs opened. And, and it, from a muscling standpoint, a genetic prediction of muscle, today we use ribeye, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. we use it, it's a logical thing to use. It is, there is correlation there. It is something we can measure, get a phenotype on and, and assign that back and build a, a genetic prediction tool around it. But it's probably not a perfect measure, Glenn. Is there... No, what's no, what's that's that right. future look like? Right. The average carcass weight when yield grades were developed by Charlie Murphy at USDA was, what, 600 pounds, yes. 650? <laughs> and today we're averaging just under 900. Uh, late last year, we were over a 900-pound average per plant. And so how has that relationship between ribeye area and carcass weight changed? Because it's out of scope probably from when it was developed. We, we know there's some better predictors of overall carcass muscling. It's just that they tend to happen downstream on the fab floor. And how does that impact payment and so forth? The other thing I'd say about it, and we need stuff like that. I, Mark, probably within cattle type, within gender, ribeye's probably more powerful than it is across the broad spectrum yeah. of genetic types. Beef okay. on dairy, purebred Holstein, whatever the case may be. So. I think that's one of the things we need to study and look for something that producers can use either with progeny testing or ultrasound that will give them a better indicator today. We need to cover these heavier carcass weights. I think ultimately we need to change our mindset around dressing percent because that's a key component on people selling on a carcass weight basis. We need to streamline it, remove the KPH on the kill floor like Canada does because that's hard to predict with instruments uh, on a cold carcass. That would clean it up and make our red meat yield prediction better. And I think we need to think of, uh, instead of dressing percent, it needs to be red meat yield as a percentage of live weight. What actually is saleable and goes in a box or goes in a ground beef patty? So those are all some real good points. The other thing on yield grade is 
we never really developed anything to account for differences in percent bone. And since most fabrication subprimals are boneless today, uh, we need to add that to the equation because that would help us differentiate between Holstein steer carcasses and beef on dairy and Angus and Angus cross, whatever the case may be. Yeah, you know, we uh, at CAB, we uh, uh, had Ty Lawrence at West Texas A&M do a white paper for us a number of years back, and 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 it brought up some of the 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 challenges with yield grade uh, from an individual carcass standpoint and variation there, and how well does it always correlate uh, to to red meat yield? And um, I believe he's just kind of redone that here recently because of, because of beef on dairy has really brought another Glenn another mix of genetics uh, into the industry, and I. Think I think we're going to learn a lot there, but one of the key takeaways that comes out of that is, you know, the, the old equations or the equation that we use today assumes a linear increase in ribeye area mm-hmm. as, hard, as carcass weight goes up. And, and what we're beginning to see is that maybe that's not the case, and, you know, that, that maybe it's more quadratic uh, in some cases. And, you know, with more data, you can ask more questions and uh, you can begin to make improvements. So we're kind of at that point in the industry where data is being collected, questions are being asked that you would hope, I, I think we'll see the industry make some strides in this area, better understanding red meat yield compared to where we've been uh, in the past. And the thing about red meat yield is it's there every day. Quality, we have swings and choice select spreads, CAB premiums, prime premiums. You know, they, they fluctuate somewhat on availability and seasonally. But red meat yield is there every day you cut up a carcass. Yeah. What what keeps some of these improvements if you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, removal of KPH and some of those things? Is it tradition or is it is it systems, logistics? That, um, that was my question. You laid out a great to-do list. Why aren't we doing any of it? <laughs> no, we do remove KPH, but we do it after the hot scale, which is the pay weight. Pay weight. So in Canada the pay weight is based on streamlined carcasses, no KPH. In the United States, is still based on that. But, you know, we, we have to somehow, it's sort of like saying, who pays for ear tags if you want me to tag them with electronic ear tags? Uh, who, who's going to pay for, who's going to stand the loss of that 3.5% average kidney, pelvic, and heart fat? And so it's not just, uh, it's not real easy. The industry will have to adjust. Maybe you'll have to take out the kidney first and then the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gradually over time. <laughs> Eventually it'll become the norm, but, you know, starting off is painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, I think what will be interesting as, as the industry moves forward and better understanding red meat yield is, uh, and I think this is important to, to, to Angus producers as much as anybody, uh, is you know, ultimately, especially if we go to where where some of the indicators are actually from data collected on the fab floor, you know, where we can really get a better estimate versus the standard yield grade equation, is how do we then translate that? We can translate that into value of the carcass, but how do we translate that into a, into a measurement that Angus breeders can then select and for? Yeah. And and you know that's where ribeye area has been so great from that standpoint, or fat thickness, or marbling score, because you know we've got we've got EPDs and so forth that can that can help us select for that. If it's hanging trimmed shank weight, which McCulley just thinks I like to say that, Glenn. Okay. He does. Yeah, but if it's hanging trimmed shank weight, what what live animal metric? Does that translate or correlate back to that Angus breeders can measure, that an EPD can be developed for, that we can then make genetic progress that that really then allows us to to propagate these these high-yielding, high-quality cattle 
uh, more effectively. Yeah. The breeders say, what are you going to make me take for data? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> what am I going to have to measure now? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we get this so much of this data. We talk about carcass data, but obviously ultrasound data. And we yeah. really look at why we've probably advanced at the pace we have. We've been able to aggregate so much data via ultrasound, which is in, in as an indicator of, of what, what that carcass merit is. And we've been able to move. But to your point, trying to, I don't know, we can ultrasound for trim shank weight and things like yeah. that and if, if you send your bull to slaughter to capture that data it's kind of kind of defeats yeah. the purpose yeah we're kind of a dead end yeah. glenn there used to back in back in some of the early days of instrument grading there was a lot of other technologies video image analysis maybe towback things using being used on other species is there anything you kind of is there one is there any of those that we need to dust off and bring back or given where we're at today are there some things out there that you see on the horizon maybe you can use in other countries or things that give you, uh, you some excitement about where we can go no no good points uh towback uh, ultrasound uh quite a few of those were tried uh the problem we had with some of the equipment is you had to fit a forequarter and a hindquarter through and was it better done warm or cold and then you had to rehang it and get it back in line and record the reading and correlate that with your trolley tracking and so they were pretty labor intensive and it's a good thing we didn't go to some of those because the tunnels would not have been large enough yeah. for a 900 pound carcass today but uh no i think there's there's technology being developed all the time um you know i wish we could do cat scan on every carcass and afford it and cool. uh, maintain it in a plant environment with all the moisture just put it on our phone everything. and we can yeah. do it out there on a set of yearling bulls yeah, yeah. there you go but uh not quite yet so yeah. we're still relying quite a bit on camera technology yeah, yeah. So. glenn you mentioned carcass weights I, i'm kind of yeah. curious from your perspective because i get this question is um but from a packer uh, i think it'll be a great great perspective from you to share is can are we can we make these carcasses too big is, is there a point where they're just too big yeah, I worry about that. I mean, I, I, I think we're kind of at the top of our limit today, but all signs point to carcass weights are going to continue to increase because that's more sustainable. That's adding more food, uh, doing a lot of things and helping people with profitability. But we worry a lot about aging plants and rails falling and worker safety and heavy boxes and, uh, uh, and animal welfare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, do cattle get sore on their feet and legs and so forth and start having more pathological problems like liver abscesses yeah. and that because we fed them too long to too heavy a weight. So we need to look at the whole picture on that and think more about optimizing instead of maximizing where we can, maybe starting them at a younger age and yeah. feeding them longer. Uh, and I think all of that would help, John. And Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's great perspective because, I, you know, and the cow-calf guy, and the Angus breeder have to decide that for what works in their environment. You know, those those all those yeah. steers have females in the pasture as well. You know, from our standpoint, usually the question relates to these subprimals are too big and so forth and so on. And everybody wants a a, a lightweight rib, but a big tender. And those that 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 science I don't think is out there, Glenn, on how we do that. Right? Yeah. I mean, 
you know, that's hard to accomplish. And so, you know, our response has always been, you know, the knife is still the best technology. And I have been, I have been really impressed with end users, their openness to, to thinking differently that, that this is a reality. They're going to get bigger. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, to, to your point, the, the answers to how big carcass weights are going to get really is going to be an answer within the production sector. It's really not going to come from, from the, the end user segment as much you as You know, and I, I think part of that acceptance, because they've already seen it in pork and poultry, you know, things getting bigger, yeah. getting, getting larger, that they had to accommodate, work around, find a way to, to retail yeah. or, or use in food service. Yeah. yeah. Glenn, you mentioned tenderness a few times, and I know you guys have, have done a lot of work in tenders. Maybe talk a little bit about that. What are you doing today? Is that, and I know to some of our listeners, some breeders that are, are you know, today we don't have an EPD for tenderness. It is uh, information that you can get in a genomic profile, and we've got breeders that are paying attention to it. Where do you see the, the, the future of, of, of objective evaluation of tenderness on, on beef? Yeah, you know, we've tested several different uh, methodologies on that. It's just testing tenderness on raw, uncooked muscle is, is I want to say, tough. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> because a lot changes during yeah. heat transfer in the cooking process with breaking down gristle or connective tissue and doing a lot of things, driving off moisture and marbling preserves that juice and aspects like that. So we still do the, the physical, uh, taking samples and aging uh, 14 days and then cooking to a medium degree of doneness and we use clay centers like Sureforce. Um, you know, we used to track that by steers, heifers, Angus, non-Angus, uh, by feed yard, by cattle buyer. And we have the ability uh, in our value-based procurement program, we can disqualify a pin of cattle for any of our brands if we so choose. And really, uh, the other thing that occurred, Mark, is USDA developed claim. We always use the claim guaranteed tender or verified tender. Uh, and USDA then developed two claims, USDA certified tender or USDA certified very tender. And we've used those ever since they, they came out. They only require you to test 300 stakes a couple of times a year to use that claim. I can't monitor cattle from 3,000, 5,000 different feed yards sampling 300 stakes twice a year. So that's why we sample every 200th carcass in all of our North American plants. And uh, we feel it's important. It, it tells a good story for beef. Obviously, the higher the grade, the higher the premium brand, the less risk you have. But we know if there's some price conscious consumers looking for Angus Select, for example, it can deliver on tenderness. They just need to add a pat of butter. <laughs> <laughs> As you've looked at your data over the, are, are we making improvement? Uh, and again, it's probably maybe confounded by marbling, uh, great improvement, but maybe not, I guess. I'm making some assumptions there. Are we? No, the quality of beef, we haven't flunked tenderness in a long, long time. Haven't disqualified anybody in a long, long time. <laughs> but part of that is what tools have we used that could put pressure on tenderness? Fortunately, we fed cattle longer, fatter, and, and we've always worried about finishing periods of less than 100 days as being higher risk and aspects like that. Obviously, high percentages of Brahmin influence put pressure on it, and so those are things we watch, but uh, it really hadn't been a problem because 
We haven't pushed mother nature to either extreme, short fed or added products that made them change their metabolism and perhaps become less tender or not respond to post-mortem aging. Yeah. And John, I know we get this question at time and breeders say, why, why don't we have a tenderness specification? Yeah, and it's a, it's a very popular question. And, you know, the reality is, is actually because of what we do know about, you know, Glenn mentions quality, the risk of a, of a tough eating experience uh, with certified Angus beef and premium levels of, of quality really goes down quite dramatically. And, and I know Glenn's data supports that data that we've done and has been done independently at other universities supports that as well. And so what we, what we come back to is the brand specifications remove that, that concern. And but I would tell you that we know that there's maybe one, one and a half percent uh, of product that gets into the brand that might not be as tender as we would like it to be. If we had a way to do that quickly at chain speed, for instance, uh, we'd be the first to implement it. You know? But I think it comes down to, again, price in relation to value. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that 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 value relationship just hasn't gotten to where uh, I think the plants uh, are all wanting to implement it and sort those carcasses out because it probably does makes more sense to guarantee that that select product Glenn is going to deliver the experience the consumer expects and the value <laughs> there when we know that with with prime CAB those upper premium levels we've already bred that into the cattle. In most cases, not in every. And I think sure. that's the question that most Angus breeders have is, you know, but wouldn't you want to remove that, that, that exception to the rule? And the answer is yes, if we could do it effectively uh, and consistently across the brand. Yeah. And if I remember some of those technologies, you could identify that one outlier, but you took quite a few others along with it. Is that? Absolutely. It, we could use a camera to determine 50% guaranteed tender. But we did the, the other 50% was in the gray area. But I guarantee you 40% of that 50 would deliver as well. So yeah. it needs refinement. John and I commonly cite the paper by Emerson and co-workers at Colorado State University. They found that if you can control tenderness, that's 80% of the way home in delivering overall eating satisfaction. If you can control richness of flavor through marbling, that adds another 10%. So you're 90 way, 90% of the way there. Grain-fed beef, you really don't have a flavor problem. Uh, CAB chefs recommend a lot of good spices as well. And yeah. so, I mean, you're, you're home. Yeah, and I, but you know, you mentioned uh, Randy when he was on mentioned the the ninety one quality audit, and and that's if if we were having this conversation then still, mm-hmm. I mean that's when 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 one out of four was tough. Right. Yeah, I mean that that's at a different stage, and and not to say that as an industry we've eliminated toughness issues because we know they're still there. Glenn, your day, that's why you still sample. Yeah. Okay. But but what's been interesting is that I think this begins to talk about why the, the most important palatability trait has now become flavor. It's not because tenderness is, is less Doesn't important. Mm-hmm. It's because it's less of an issue than it once was. And now flavor desire, that, that rich, beefy, buttery flavor is what consumers are looking for because we have collectively, and I think you mentioned the, the, just the general use of Angus genetics. That's been a big part, yeah. I think, of helping address that industry issue that we had so many years ago. So we can definitely further refine it um, as technology improves and the value is there. But, but um, we've done a good job as right. an industry, and Angus has Absolutely. been a big part of that. And, and almost 20 years of tenderness testing at Cargill, I can tell you that CAB aged 21 days post-harvest in tenderness is equivalent to our U.S. prime tenderness. 
age 14 days. And so you, you can get there, both with great management practices and genetics leading up, qualifying for the brand, and then doing the right thing on the back yep. end before you serve it to a consumer. So that, that's a great story. Yep. Yeah. So, and some might not know, we there's requirements of our food service distributors, John, of, of aging and yep. maybe things yep. that a lot of folks don't think about. Yeah, to, Glenn, to Glenn's point, you know, we, we need to do everything we can at these price levels because we expect folks to pay more for this product. That's and so right. we do require our food service distributors to age those middle meat items 21 days before they, before they sell them out to a restaurant customer. So we've talked about a lot about the past. We've talked quite a bit about the future and future tools, but... For the Angus breeders that are listening, what are some things they can do right now today? What what is the your pack? We got a packer sitting here. What would you like Angus breeders to do? <laughs> I think keep bringing us more Angus and Angus cross steers and heifers. Uh, I I think as long as we think about both ends and and with as many people getting paid on a carcass merit grid today, I think that's the case. Uh, when people sold predominantly on the cash market, once it left the feed yard or once the feeder calf was bought from the ranch and that, things were forgotten. But today I think because the end in mind is still what am I producing quality-wise, pounds-wise, red meat yield-wise, we've kind of closed that void and we're doing a better job of thinking that we are producing food and we are serving customers and, and influencing beef demand. So I want uh, Angus producers to continue to progress, uh, continue to multiply, continue to provide great genetics, uh, and to do it in a way where it fits what, what we need. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question, Miranda. I, I, I would say I think Angus producers are doing a lot of what we need. I, I do come back to reiterating that we've not arrived on marbling. Um, we, have, we still have got to continue to put pressure you know, on uh, selection for for marbling. Yeah, at the same time, I want to I want to be. You know, we are we are the we're the end product aspect of, of the breed. Okay, but but we, we don't operate in a vacuum. And, and obviously, if 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 we were uh, at an Angus convention or anywhere, it's the questions always come. What about maternal cow function and so forth? And this is this is all about multi-trait selection. And that, that's that's I think from my perspective is we definitely want Angus breeders to don't just jump on the marbling background or, or bandwagon. You, you know, we all have to get these cows bred. Okay, we need calves that grow and, and so forth. And so this balanced trait selection, but uh, is what we need. But again, I would push back on that that commentary that's out there that we've put enough marbling into these cattle. We can go focus on other things. That's a that's a great point, John. We we don't. Let's just take tenderness for example. Tenderness is a threshold, and once you meet it, forget about it. Yeah. If you get in a race for only tenderness, you're going to produce a jersey, yeah. <laughs> and that's not what the Angus breed needs. It just needs to deliver and not be the outlier yeah. that's tough, then focus on all the other economically important traits, both in their operations and downstream. So. Yeah. When we talk about those cattle that have that genetic potential for marbling, I mean, we, it, it opens up the door of how we can manage those cattle. I mean, as new technologies yeah. come along and, and things that it can improve us from an efficiency standpoint or even a red meat yield standpoint, uh, to, to be able to have the, the genetic insulation, if you will, to, to not knock get knocked on quality is, is, is also something to think about. Yeah. I mean, if we need to short feed these cattle a bit, you know, based on input costs and cost of gain, we have the flexibility yeah. to do it's that. These cattle policy. have the have the yeah. uh, that genetic potential. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
We've covered a lot of ground, and I know you guys got other things you've got to get to. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about related to this topic? Glenn brought notes. So did we cover all your notes, Glenn? You bet. We got to them. <laughs> well, I didn't bring notes, so it looks like we've covered John everything covered I was going to talk about. He's literally got a blank sheet of paper with a pen next to it. So he didn't take intentions it. were to write yeah. something down, well, but he never did. Well, Glenn always tells me when, I, when I'm saying something, say something profound, and that doesn't come easy. And I thought if, it's, if, a, if a thought came to me that was profound, I'd, I'd write it down. But I obviously don't have anything that on my paper. That says a lot about what we did. What we talked about Mark. <laughs> nothing significant that we yeah, said that right. he write down or spur a thought. Or that mine's a steel trap that's and he right. just didn't need to write that's it right. down. That's right. So we always end the podcast on a random question of the week. So random question for you guys. When was the first time you ever set foot in a packing plant? Oh, it, for me it would have been uh, 1991 uh, when I was on the meat judging team at Kansas State. Had been the first time that uh, I was in a, a large-scale pack and plant, and uh, I just remember thinking, "Wow, uh, there's a lot going on in here." And you look at what's the process, but once you get beyond the, the just the, the cattle and so forth, and you begin to look at the technology, the the, the, the way these plants mm -hmm. work, and that was back before uh, I was in a plant to, to capture carcass data. And to be perfectly honest, you know, doing it the old way without a camera, you know, there were so many ways where data could have got crossed and so forth. And you just understand the complexity mm -hmm. of a plant. And uh, uh, but that would have been the very first time. And ever since then, you know, it's, it's the camera technology. These things we've talked about have made it easier to get that information from a, a fairly complex, rapidly moving system. So. All right, Glenn. Well, well, I grew up in the packing industry. My family still. They brought you in in a baby a, carrier? Or no, what? but it, I, it would have been about 1960 in our own plant, but it was small, 100 head a week. Uh, but uh, when I went to graduate school in 1974, I studied under Dr. Gary Smith, and my first master's project for my thesis was feeder cattle frame size in Greeley, Colorado at Monfort's plant. So that's where that yeah. dates back. Okay, good. Actually, the first time I met Glenn, school. first time I met Glenn was in a, a meat cooler. Yeah. I was at Oklahoma <laughs> State, but uh, so anyway, I wasn't on a meats team, um, and so it would have been grad school, and I got assigned the first thing out of the. My first project was we were doing uh, Thailand liver abscess work, and I got sent yeah. to the to the plant to uh, score livers um, and and sat on the gut line for. Well, you a that week. sounds fun. We still have that issue, so I you know. know. I studied hard. You could dust that more work off. I think we fixed it. I just didn't get it published. Sorry yeah. about that. Oh, something changed. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. guys, thank you for yes. being here. I know you're both super busy. Um, we're just blessed to have both of you guys as in incredible leaders. Uh, John, as a as a colleague and on our team, Glenn, as a as a partner and and, and friend, you guys are uh, are leaders in this industry, and we appreciate you being here to share that perspective and and share your thoughts about where we've been and and maybe more importantly where we're going. So thank you both. Yes. You're you. welcome. You bet. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you like what you heard, go ahead and click subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we love hearing from all of our listeners. Go ahead and leave a review, comment, or head over to theangusconversation.com, scroll to the bottom of that page and find a box where you can drop us ideas for guests, ideas for topics. We really want to know, what would you like to hear about? And of course, Mark and I have really been enjoying the personal messages. So go ahead and keep those coming too. Thanks for joining us today on the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal podcast.